0: it's my pleasure to welcome Alan Noble, Associate Professor of English at the Oklahoma Baptist University and the Founder and Editor-in-Chief of Christ and Pop Culture. Alan, thanks for coming on and talking to us about your your new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. And I I wanted to ask, my my first question actually should have been, uh, are you in fact still the Editor-in-Chief of Christ and Pop Culture? Is that something you're still in charge of?
1: Uh, not really. No, at this point, I've sort of my university duties are too much. So I'm more of an advisor at this point. Okay.
0: Okay. But the site is still going strong. yeah? Yeah. 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 That's right. Excellent. Oh, uh, as per usual with a podcast like this, I'll, I'll mention that anything we reference to where I can put a link to it, I'll, I'll put that link in the, um, uh, email that goes out with the show. So you can look for that. Alan, I thought I'd start our conversation actually by, by going back a book. Uh, so your, your first Uh, I'm not sure, was this your first book, Disruptive Witness?
1: Yeah, yes. came out in in
0: 2018, uh, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. I thought it was an excellent uh, book, an excellent guide for Christians seeking to make sense of uh, the cultural waters in which we all swim or or feel ourselves to sometimes be drowning. Um, (laughs) I thought it was a a really um, valuable work, also in so much as it introduced readers, uh, if they didn't know his work already, to Charles Taylor. And I was curious if there was a some direct progression in your thinking from your work and where your thinking was when you completed Disruptive Witness, then coming into writing, You Are Not Your Own. Do these books kind of work together in your mind?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I mean, it is a, an informal sequel in some ways. Yes. As I was going around giving talks, doing podcasts about Disruptive Witness. A lot of people would ask me for uh, sort of pragmatic advice, which I'm, I'm not necessarily opposed to, but, um, you know, they would ask things like, so what are the, you know, digital five digital habits I need yeah. or to, to fix things? And I'd find myself thinking, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I have some things that work for me and my family, but I don't, I don't have that's It's not that kind of a book. So uh, that was happening. And the other thing that was happening is that, you know, the premise, part of the premise of Disruptive Witness is exploring this addiction to distraction that we have. And and I try to make this uh, argument that both technology of distraction and secularization work in tandem uh, and sort of feed each other to keep us, to buffer us so that we don't want to ask life's big questions. Um, And I still believe that thesis. But After giving these talks and hearing people and then examining my own life and my own habits and the habits of the people I know, uh, it struck me that that wasn't um, a comprehensive explanation. I mean, it wasn't meant to be comprehensive, but it wasn't it wasn't satisfying enough. In other words, there are these other moments where myself people i know would turn to things that you might from the outside say well this person is distracting themselves because as i say in disruptive witness they don't want to think about god or death or sin or you know all these sorts of big questions and i realized that's not always the case that that sometimes um people aren't um avoiding those kinds of things and yet they still feel this need to numb themselves to self-medicate. Well, why might that be? Um, and this book uh, in some ways is an exploration of that question. So, so in other
0: words, we're not always having uh, moments of Pascalian angst when we are distracted or when we're kind of compulsively turning towards uh, towards our devices for, for that dire- distraction or that hit of dopamine or whatever it may be. Precisely, yes, exactly. And so it, you the title of the book is You're Not Your Own the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, obviously looms large over the book. How did the frame of belonging, uh, whether we we're you know self possessive or alternatively understand ourselves to belong to God, how how did that frame come about to help you organize your thinking along these lines? You know, books have very
1: long uh, lives, gestation periods, gestation periods, and mm-hmm. and um, I think this one three. Four years, I don't know, uh, ago. I was following, as I still do, a lot of the, the contemporary debates, public discourse about, you know, uh, the 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 issues that evangelicals and conservatives and you know Americans are very concerned about, things like abortion, things about gender and sexuality and identity and these sorts of things. And as I was following news reports and and you know op eds, it struck me that so many of them hinged on a question of belonging. And what I mean is that the author would you know their conclusions would really be downstream from how they understood to whom they belong so if they if they assumed that they belonged to themselves, then there were certain natural a- outcomes that came and um on the other hand, there were other people who 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 believed that they didn't belong to themselves, and that shaped the way they were thinking so as i stepped back and saw you know this is sort of all over the place there's 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 a lot of this um particularly around these these issues that we think of as 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 very acutely modern issues um it struck me that 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 maybe part of the shift in the modern era is a shift to in our conception of of
0: of belonging the the idea that we belong to ourselves it seems like um just a hallmark of uh, liberal democratic Western modernity, right? It's you, we are individuals. We enter into a relationship with others on a kind of purely contractual basis. We understand ourselves first and foremost as as people with rights before we acknowledge any obligations and those obligations are always self-chosen. And so a certain understanding of freedom or liberty I think is entailed in this idea of, of self possession, right? That I that I belong to myself, but you you also uh, dwell on the fact that that there's a cost that comes with this too. There's a price or a burden to self possession. Can you talk a little bit about that? What what do you see as yeah. sort of the the how to put it the the the, co- the unspoken costs that come with this ideal that we buy into because we think it's sort of maximizing freedom and self sufficiency? So the cover of the book, which I did
1: not design or think up, is um, Sisyphus pushing boulders up up the hill. And, you know, that's both an allusion to Camus and his book, you know, The Myth of Sisyphus, um, talking about this very question from an existentialist perspective, right? So if we are, if there is no God and we are radically alone and uh, the world is absurd in the sense that there is no inherent meaning in it and we impose meaning upon it, um, then uh, life is this <laughs> monumental, endless task that doesn't really accomplish anything. But he says, you know, we must imagine Sisyphus happy because in choosing to bear this boulder and push forward, there's some sense of dignity or honor Um and you know it's interesting you said it's sort of an unacknowledged cost and i think it is but it's it's also not and I, it seems to me that 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 dynamic is actually one of the contemporary trends is that we are we're actually pretty aware that things don't work but uh, we have various mechanisms to, to, to deal with it. So mm-hmm. irony is one of the main ones, uh, various coping mechanisms, a belief in technology and innovation. Okay, yes, it's not working right now, but eventually I will be mm-hmm. able to wear, bear the boulder mm-hmm. that I am carrying, right? Um, so the cost, of course, is that uh, y- you have to um, bear the responsibility for your entire being in the world. And I, I chose to talk about belonging, and I, I talk a lot about being, and I avoid the word individualism, uh, not because I'm not talking about individualism, but I want to think about it from also more of an existential perspective, a, a broader perspective. So it's not just that as citizens, we have you know, certain sort of political autonomy, but it's also, I think for modern people, uh, there is a tendency to think of their, their being in the world as self-sustaining, right? So um, as opposed to a, a Christian understanding where um, your, your being is actually a, a radical gift from God, uh, which, you know, changes things quite a bit. So as I studied this, as I thought through, okay, if we belong to ourselves, what are the ramifications? What are the burdens that come with this? Um, I, call them the responsibilities of self-belonging. and I broke them down into these overlapping really categories of justification, um, identity, value, meaning, and uh, you know belonging. And um, the individual, when given this radical freedom, uh, ends up having to carry the weight of all of those things all the time on their own. Um, and there's never a sense of an end point. So th- th- again, the myth of Sisyphus is really helpful here. You are pushing the boulder of your being, your existence up the hill. And um, there's no end point because it's going to roll right back down and you're going to have to craft a new identity, or you're going to have to craft a new purpose for your life, or you're going to have to figure out something else, or you're going to have to redefine your you know, meaning. Um, and uh, it's exhausting and I and I think most modern people know this on some on some level.
0: I, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, and there's no um, there's no respite, and there's no endpoint, right? There's no terminus. You you don't ever get to some point where you say, "Okay, now I've done this," or "Now I'm satisfied," or "Now I'm." And I can see so many different kind of cultural forces that reinforce that. I think you're right, by the way. Um, so in saying. That the costs are unacknowledged. I I think maybe I might clarify to say that that when when this way of looking at the world is offered to us or presented to us, especially maybe in sort of market contexts, uh, it's presented as a an unalloyed good. But there are all sorts of kind of visceral elements of lived experience that I think are leading more and more people to, th- to, to recognize that, that something about the, the whole picture of the way we've ordered our society is off, right? It's just not working for human beings, qua human beings. And, and I think that realization, you know, dawns on people regardless of their kind of religious orientation or, or their particular anthropology. And that ends up being a big part of your your argument that that we have, we have built a world that on the surface seems... Wonderful, right? We have advanced medicine. We have, um, you know, comforts that would make Solomon blush, Uh, especially in the West and in rich countries, materially rich countries. But that, at the same time, there there are other ways of looking at this world that we've created that lead you to conclude that it is fundamentally uh, inhospitable, right, to human well-being. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? What are some of the dynamics that you see at play there that kind of have built this world around the ideal of self-belonging, uh, but has, has also meant that the world we've built for ourselves is, is inhospitable to us.
1: So that particular argument came um, largely out of um, my own experiences, the experience of my wife, which I, I write about. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'd say it's my wife, um, particularly in, in thinking about work. So, my wife has two master's degrees, one in math and one in uh, data science. So, uh, she's a very well qualified person and she would love to work part time. And our economy is not set up for someone to work part time in a, in, a in, a, in a skilled job. She can, you know, she might be able to work as a receptionist or something, which is, you know, has skills too. I'm not demeaning that, but I'm saying with her skill set, there isn't really part-time work. People did not want to hire her. Now, so that's one aspect of it. Society is set up to assume that because the key assumption there is, well, if you're the type of person who wants to get a master's degree, who wants to study data science, you're going to want to devote your life to it. Like you're doing this 40 hours, probably 50 or 60 hours a week, right? And this is going to be your thing. You're going to be making a lot of money. You're willing to move wherever it takes to get this kind of job, so on and so forth. It's not set up with the assumption that maybe somebody could have skilled labor and and want to uh, to only work part time because there are other valuable things in life. So, OK, so that's part of it. On the other mm-hmm. hand, so uh, while she's looking for this job, uh, she's having these interactions with other adults. She was staying at home with our kids and pretty consistently when people would, you know, she would meet people. Their response to her would be, well, what do you do? And when they found out that she was a stay-at-home mom, that, you know, even even people who were conservative and thought, wow, staying at home with children is a good thing. They would still often ask, what does your husband do? And the implication mm-hmm. being, well, Okay, I'm going to move on to some more interesting person Mm -hmm. Mm because I don't have much to say to you. So there are all these different ways that she's getting these signals that, um, well, the way you're living your life because you're choosing not to devote yourself entirely to a career um, is inadequate. And no one, no one person came along and said that it was the way the market was structured. It was the way expectations were formed in society. Uh, and that was a burden that, you know, she had to bear. And so that was one of the first things that made me think of that also staying at home with children in the fact that, you know, parenting in isolation mm-hmm. is very inhuman. when you have little children, and we all live in very separate houses. Um, it's, it, it's not human, It's very stressful. It's very, uh, it's very hard. Um, but then I think, you know, I, I think about I so I had a great radio interview with a uh, a Catholic priest in his 80s who's who um, lost his sister recently. And he was describing to me one of these inhuman events. And he said one of these was when he was trying to get all of her accounts switched over after she had passed away. Um, he was spending hours on the phone. Uh, going through these digital systems, trying to get to a human being and trying to get things resolved. And the whole thing just felt belittling and, um, and depressing and, you know, impersonal. Um, and so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the, the inhuman world that I describe in the book is not one in which, um, so I'm not necessarily just saying that, you know, our entire, let's say, market economy is broken, or that there's some uh, great social injustice that that's going on. Although those things may be true, what I'm talking about is lots and lots, billions of little things that are based on um, this false anthropology that I think add up to a very wearying life.
0: Yeah. The the um. So. The quote that you have at the start of um, the third chapter, How Society Fails Us, came to mind. Uh, It's a a wonderful set of lines, very powerful by Simone Weil. Um, We are living in a world in which nothing is made to man's measure. Uh, There exists a monstrous discrepancy between man's body, man's mind, and the things which at the present time constitute the elements of human existence everything is in this, this equilibrium. Um, And that's so powerful because it speaks to this idea that there's a scale, a pace that is um, fitting to the human being as a sort of creatures that we are. And that the, the, in in the countless ways that you articulate um, our society just isn't set up to accommodate that pace or that scale. Um, And so exhaustion uh, is one way of talking about how we feel in this realm. Um, there's a lot of talk about burnout, uh, which I think is just another word for this same realization that even predated the pandemic. Along with they, you also, much to my heart's content, draw on the work of Jacques Ellul. And, and so I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how he came into the picture for you and, and the kind of work that he did for you in, in terms of Making the case and, and helping you understand kind of the dynamics you're trying to to describe here.
1: Yeah, I don't, you know, I honestly don't remember where I was in, introduced. It might have been you that introduced me to Elul. I, I cannot remember, but it was somebody who um, I was, um, you know, following online who made a recommendation. And so I read the Technological Society. And uh, what Elul did for me. Uh, well, there were there were a number of things, you know, one is, you, so you read that, that quote from Simone Veil and, and uh, I think one of the earlier chapters begins with a, a kind of similar quote from Elul where he talks about men being created to walk, you know, 10 kilometers a mile or uh, that probably is way too far, 10 kilometers a mile, <laughs> at a certain speed, a human yes, right, speed, right, right. right? And now he's you know, zip down the road and all these things. And he's talking about scale. He's talking right. about scale and, and, and human um, human environment. Right? right. And so, so that resonated a lot and it was encouraging to see, okay, this is not just me and it's not just America and it's not just, uh, the 2010s, right. Or 2020s. Um, the other thing, or the chief thing is this is his idea of technique mm-hmm. and thinking about that as one of the chief ways in which, uh, a certain, an anthropology might manifest and, uh, create disorder. And so in the book, I wrestled with this a lot and was probably maybe never entirely satisfied with it. But in the book, what I what I came to the conclusion I came to or the argument I come to is that um, in uh, a society with you know, in, you know, what McIntyre calls this emotive society where there's very little agreement about what values are true values and good values and uh, where it's very difficult to have public discourse because there's so little common ground. The argument I make is that uh, efficiency which is one of the ways Elul talks about what one of the things he's talking about with technique, uh, efficiency is one of the, you know, the few things that we can at at least, uh, communicate to one another. And so, for example, if I can articulate the number of uh, lives saved by a mask mandate, for example, uh, that has more sway than talking about, um, you know, just personal liberties or something like this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, in the book, I try to argue that, that you actually find this on the right and the left, a tendency to move towards data and harm reduction, which is measurable, um, when it's measurable, um, as, uh, as the way we make these moral arguments, because it feels like efficiency, uh, is the, is the safest thing to, um, to turn to, but then, um, I also talk um, a lot about um, when um, I think if, if we belong to ourselves, okay, let me back up and restart that. Um, Elul in talking about technique, one of the the things he notes about technique is that it trumps all other values, right? So this is really Mm. key to his argument is Mm. that, that um, technique trumps all other values. So, um, you know, r- religious objections or moral objections um, are actually just get in the way of, of technique. And uh, so they end up getting uh, suppressed. Um, and, uh, and I do think that if we belong to ourselves, that's an easier uh, concept to, to accept. Whereas if we belong to, to God, then we can't accept that efficiency is the, the maximum good. Right? We have to accept that there are other goods, there, that there are other goods that we are responsible for, that we have obligations toward. And so living in a society where we're free to just emphasize uh, efficiency, you can have, oh, I don't know, an an insurance or a a banking system that is so fixated on efficiency that an 81-year-old man who just lost his sister has to spend hours talking to computers and trying to trick them to talk to a real human being to try to get her accounts switched over so that he can move on with his life, Mm -hmm. right? And why do they do this? Because they know it's a lot more efficient than, you know, Properly staffing their uh, systems um, and so,
0: cost-effective, right? Or something Precisely. like that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot. Of, I think of um, of profound insights in 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 those last couple of minutes there. Um, so it might be useful for listeners to say maybe just a, a word of explanation because technique is such a. You know, we we understand something by it in ordinary conversation. Elul has this very expansive way of understanding what technique is. Sometimes when I write about it, I go ahead and just use the French phrase, la technique, to sort of indicate, this is not just what you think, what we tend to think about technique. Yeah. Um, yeah and then there's this one sort of classic definition that uh, Elul gives in, in the technological society. How, how would you, for sort of modern ears, describe what Elul has in mind um, by technique?
1: So I think of, of two words, uh, methods and efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So I think of, of his understanding of techniques as um, uh, a constant progress of, of new and new, newer and newer methods that increase efficiency over time. And so I'll often talk to people, um, I, I think you know, in, in internet age, it's, it's, it's very easy to see this. Um, uh, there are a bazillion apps that are just fundamentally through and through about technique. I get ads, um all the time on Instagram, uh, targeted, uh, targeted ads, which is another uh, technique, but um, that tell me, okay, you know, here's how, here, here's the method, the program, the mindset, the diet, the exercise, the, um, the spiritual discipline, the, uh, you know, the, the, the psycho uh, the counseling app, that's one of them I've been getting lately. I don't know if they know that I've been not feeling really well lately, but they've been sending me these ads for like an app where i can do automated counseling. Great. That's exactly what i want, right? Um yeah. but the idea is here's a here's a method, here's a method uh to increase efficiency and i think Elul says in like all areas of human life or something like mm-hmm. this, right? Yeah. And um and and i'm not sure that Elul I, I think Elul says this, but what i have been stressing to people is that there's not Efficiency itself is a fine is a fine value on its own. The problem is when it becomes um, superior to all other values, which it it easily does. It sneaks in even in even in. Uh, You know, I'm thinking of businesses, uh, even very, you know, uh, uh, virtuous businesses or very Christian businesses or uh, ones who are very concerned about justice or things like this very, very easily and very subtly, the the drive to find the most efficient method to do things and the fastest and the most profitable can squash um, what we were talking about earlier, which is human scale and human needs and human concerns
0: and and there's um yeah i I've, I've used of late the word optimization to try to to get at this because i think it's a word that has certainly kind of become you know very widely used and understood and so this kind of tyrannical drive to optimize everything uh to turn everything we do into a a, a field for for optimized performance and there's this there are all these issues that that are on the table right now that i think can only be seen clearly if we see them together right so Going back to you know McIntyre's um, uh, diagnosis of contemporary public discourse, where we we can't progress on substantive matters because we don't have a common moral vocabulary or moral framework or, or a, a narrative community. And so, what do you do when when you simply do not inhabit the same moral universe? What what fills that vacuum? And you know your your point I think is is quite um, well put that. We, we turn to what we can measure, right? What we can quantify, what we can speak of in terms of, you know, of, of mathematics and, and, and put a number and thus make judgments in that way. And that very, very subtly, it, it's not just that, you know, socially, it seems to me, it's not just socially, we lack a common sort of moral framework in which we can have substantive, meaningful substantive debates, but even personally, and maybe this goes back to that idea of, of rolling the stone up perpetually, right? And not we don't. We, there's no T loss that we're aiming for, right? There's there's no sense of of, of having a, a clear purpose or framework of meaning that we, meaningfulness that we might be aiming towards. And so all we know to do is just to go faster and more quickly <laughs> yeah. in, in in whatever direction, right? So it it's 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 a a kind of a vicious feedback cycle where we reinforce the absence, that absence or, or that sense of self-belonging through a reduction of our, our both public discourse and our own sort of inner practice, you know, our, our, our personal private family practices to, to technique and efficiency. And all of that works seemingly in sync with one another um, mm-hmm. in a way that makes it very hard to imagine to even imagine the alternative, yeah. um, which is what's striking to me, and, and you you make you give this illustration in the book about how you know even when we are trying to talk about uh, human goods, uh, a company, for example, will will frame its you know uh, family friendly policies in terms of increased productivity. Right? We we yeah. know that uh, well rested workers are more productive for the firm, uh, so that even in in, in trying to work against it we're we're still operating within the frame of technique and, and i think this is a, a little genius um, yeah in recognizing how totalizing yeah. this this vision is yeah
1: yeah And you know i so i wrote that and i remember uh right after i finished the book i read this interesting article and in i think harvard business review about it was a survey on what um, what employees most, what benefit or uh, improvement in the work environment they wanted most? And the number one thing people said in their survey was uh, natural lighting. And it struck me like, man, if if. <laughs> If our business structure, businesses are structured so that people just want to get sunlight, that that sounds like speaking of human scale, like that's problematic on its own. But what really killed me was the next paragraph or so uh, the article goes on to say, not only, you know, is this what employees want? Studies have shown that it improves productivity. And I thought, man, they couldn't help themselves like they had to do it. They couldn't just say it's good to see sunlight. It's 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 nice. It's it's good for us. They had to say it will save the company money. And what's what I try to argue in the book, and I think is absolutely true, is that um, this this isn't just, um, you know, about the company trying to uh, to sell it. This is also a, a way of comforting employees, because I do think we have been so trained again. Efficiency is so totalizing, technique is so totalizing that, that we really do want to know that what we're doing when we're living humanly is also efficient. And if we could right. do that, then okay, I can take time off with my newborn. Then I can rest on Sunday. Then I can enjoy
0: sunlight or whatever, yeah. which is just bizarre. The, the 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 matter of sunlight is really interesting uh, to me in part because it just yesterday you may have seen this on Twitter. I guess I just indicted both of us for, for being on Twitter. But there was a, uh, an article in The Guardian, I think, or an op-ed in The Guardian by David Chalmers, the um, uh, neurophilosopher. I'm not sure how to qualify him, but he, he does a lot of embodiment stuff and for extended mind work. And, um, and he, he, his argument, the, the, the headline was something like, you know, the, uh, you know, virtual reality is reality. And it's, it's this sort of argument for uh, the fact that this idea that we that we might step into a metaverse and, and live more and more of our time, uh, spend more and more of our time in a, in a virtual realm and a more thoroughly virtual realm uh, that that the, 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 the satisfactions we might find there might eventually outstrip those that we would find in the uh, so-called real world or the non-virtual world. But then somewhere along the way as he's sort of touting this, he says uh, but but you know, people may still need to, uh, you know, there, there's a danger here, we might go overboard, because people might still need uh, food and water and an occasional glimpse of sunlight. And it, it was kind of just put in that way, which to me sort of foregrounds the, the question of the body, right? A lot of this seems to me to, to turn on the fact that we uh, are, are embodied creatures, and that that body has certain inherent limits, flourishes in certain contexts and not others. Um, but that those those limits and the frailty of the body in some respects are often very inefficient in that larger system. And we are at war. I mean, that's what I would,
1: you know, I, I feel like our society is at war against the body. Right. So one of the things i mention is th- this concept of, a, of of the way of affirmation i try to you mm-hmm. know think through how do people deal mm-hmm. with uh, this inhuman society and i argue there are some people who are resigned and there are some people who become affirming and by that i mean they just think the system basically works and uh, of course um Everyone who thinks that way, everyone who thinks, all right, the meritocracy works, if I work hard enough, put my head down, take my responsibilities with self belonging and hustle, my life will turn out okay. They always know that there are going to be hiccups right? Bodies fail. Some people are more attractive than others. Some people come from better backgrounds. There's political injustice. There's natural disasters. But what, what it seems to me is that, that we also are hyper aware of those three areas as areas where our society is actively uh, com- combating um, the natural world, right? So we're saying, okay, whatever your biological limits are, we're going to try to to push those we're going to try to address those so are there other ways to get you food and water and sunlight right can we get you a a lamp right one of those yeah. happy lamps that i've got you know um are, you know are there other ways how do we prevent natural disasters how, how do we fix uh, you know injustices so that we can create this space where the self-optimization works perfectly mm-hmm.
0: the, there's another um writer who i was not familiar with uh that you brought my, to my attention Alan uh, Ehrenberg. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? I don't know. Ehrenberg <laughs> is what I said. You know, okay. I'm not sure. Um, you cite him frequently, and, yeah. and he's a sociologist. Is that correct? Um, uh, yes. But, and and he's written a kind of uh, history of of depression or or, or mental yeah. health. Um, uh, talk to us a little bit about 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 his work and and how that informed your your thinking and your, and your, um, your argument in the book?
1: Oh, he's fantastic. What, what is his book? Um, um, let's see. I should have it memorized. Uh,
0: the weariness of the self.
1: The weariness of the self. Yeah, I was going to say the yeah. burden of the self or something. Yeah. yeah, the weariness of the self. When I saw that title and I was like, that sounds <laughs> I I know that. I feel that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what the, what is this about? Yeah. So, he's incredibly fascinating because he's not a psychologist. Um, but what he's doing is a, a study, a really close and sometimes tedious study of basically the source document. So when psychologists over the last hundred years or more have gotten together in these conventions and conferences and journals to talk about what is anxiety, what is depression, where does it come from? How does it function? How does, how did that change over time? Um, and he, yeah, and he explores it in, in, in quite a lot of detail. One of the main shifts that he notes is that we move from a, um, a view where uh, problems in the human psyche, in the human mind, are uh, internal conflicts that have to be resolved in some way, that, 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 that there needs to be this uh, examination of ourselves and our motives and our past and these sorts of things to, to untangle. And sometimes it doesn't, um, it, it never gets completely untangled, but uh, that is the work. Um, there's, so that's, so a model where there's not really a, necessarily a cure, um, but we know that this is at the core of our depression or anxiety. And, and then he charts the way things like insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and the, and the DSM, um, all, uh, change and shift things so that we're thinking in terms a lot about uh, uh, many times in terms of of medication and he finds and this is one of the things i found most fascinating he finds that in in, really in the i think in the 90s he says and in onward when people talk about depression and anxiety they talk about uh they talk about it in terms of inadequacy and uh i think inaction like uh, if you are depressed the two things that define it are are that you feel inadequate as a person and you feel like you can't act in the world. And what he's actually charted is that hasn't always been the way people have described their experience of depression. So what, what changed? And he argues a, a, a few times that you know it has to do with the self. It has to do with the, the contemporary burden of being a self, which is unsustainable. We place this on people. And then uh, when they react in a very natural way, which is they feel inadequate trying to bear this burden of the self and and that inadequacy leads them to inaction. I can't get out of bed. I can't move. Right. Then um, then we give them coping mechanisms. Right. That's what we do. We give them coping mechanisms um, and often. You know, the way certain antidepressants and, and, and things were were advertised was, you know, like, uh, you know, f- feel like your full self or um, get out in the world. You know, this drug, what it'll do is the message is it'll it'll help you get out there and be active. Right. And this is what you need, you know, uh, to, to solve things. So it's a powerful um, book, uh, you know, a bit dull at times, but highly recommend. And,
0: and so. I'm I'm thinking here because the the last chapter or the last uh, section maybe not the the maybe the penultimate section of Ilul's technological society is a section he devotes to human techniques, mm-hmm. right? And so the idea is you we've we've created uh, a world that is uh, sort of ordered around the ideal of of machine like efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it we found it's not good for people, and so rather than changing the structures of that world that we've built, uh, we, we just give people these techniques to apply to themselves yeah. in order to to cope, as you say, right, to, to survive, right, to achieve, um, you know, minimum viable selfhood uh, in, in, in a world that is, you know, fundamentally always at odds with the sorts of creatures that we are. And, and I think one of the w- sort of tools, if you will, that a little points to is uh, pharmacology, uh, or at least I know that he he you know draws uh, or refers to that in some of his his follow up work to technological society, but we we sort of refuse, and the we here of course is very generic, right? Uh, those with any agency over our social structures, the idea that we might just completely rethink the kind of world that we've built and the values that are embedded in it, never kind of occurs to 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 people. I, I'm wondering if you have noted over the past two years, is there, is there any kind of changing tide in this respect? Uh, you know, I, I say that because I feel like I've picked up in, in certain portions of the, of the discourse uh, a growing frustration with work conditions or, or the way that work structures our lives, mm. um, with the pace of life, with the, the busyness that it entails... Are, are there any signs that you've seen that there might be a, a growing critical mass of people who have, you know, sort of put the pieces together and and are, are, are looking and searching for something different at, at a more, not just at the level of individual techniques, right, but, but at, at a more fundamental level? So we already agreed earlier that
1: Um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the problems are not so much unspoken or unacknowledged after the fact. So the market, when it's presented to us this radical freedom, it's sold to us as just a positive thing. But very quickly, we realize there are all kinds of downsides. So recognizing the downsides is not new, but it does. I think you're right that there are um, more, uh, uh, you know, Collective movements accepting and recognizing um, that there's a problem. So the great resignation, Mm -hmm. right, that that uh, I don't know if you've written about this, I've wanted to write about this in connection to the book and I just have not had time because we live in a hectic world, um, but but it seems to me that that at least part of the equation, part of the you know the, the reality of you know why so many people are just resigning from jobs is that we have so many jobs that are fundamentally meaningless. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have time to reflect on that, um, uh, it's it's easy to step back and see this this isn't doing anything meaningful to anyone. All this is doing is getting me money and uh that can be satisfying for for a period of time but it's not it's not deeply satisfying so yes i suppose i I do think that there are um pockets of people who are recognizing um, this doesn't work i guess my concern is that a lot of the response is going to be um you know raise wages Uh, which is, you know, which I'm not opposed to. But I think we need to be to be careful here um, because (laughs) it is often the case that uh, dehumanizing and undignified and, um, you know, toxic jobs, jobs that harm the environment and harm other people, uh, perpetuate because they pay well enough, right? And so what can happen is the, the employee thinks Uh, I I will put up with the meaninglessness of this um, because I can feed my family and it's good to feed your family. Um, So what I've seen a lot of people talking about the great resignation, what I've seen a lot of is, okay, well, we want, um, you know, we want, want higher pay. And I'm, again, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but I'm concerned that what that can do is obscure the more basic problem behind it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think that we, we need to be careful. Um, at least I find myself wanting to be careful. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing for somebody who has, um, you know, some kind of you know, robust community and resources that it's not, who's not living in a, in a state of constant precarity to be able to, to rethink their conditions of labor and work and, and rethink the place of work in their lives. Um, it's another thing for somebody who who is, you know, only able to, you know, eke out a living and pay rent and feed their kids, you know, the, the in other words, the, the, there, there are differences in where people are in a socioeconomic ladder, so to speak, that, that affect their ability to respond to yeah. um the, the, the kinds of disorders that we are, yeah. we're, you know, we're identifying. And then, and then, yeah. So having said that though, there, the, the more, I guess, you know, what, what has encouraged me a little bit is that there is, in some cases, at least, it seems some more attention being paid to, to more fundamental questions. So, not just you know, is does this job pay enough? But should my identity identity be centered around work, right? It, mm. it, so, you know, whether that turns into you know movement with wide cultural consequences or not, I don't know. But um, there are at least some some signs of a of a deepening awareness that the the, the system. Which sounds like such a kind of 70s hippie way of putting it, right? But that the, the system and its economic technological components is is fundamentally unhumane and and not satisfying, not only not satisfying, but sort of actively harmful in some respects, however well it might, you know, provide for um, you know material needs you know for for some people or maybe for for many people. Obviously, I want to get to the second half of, of the book, a lot of what we've talked about, you know, dwells on your diagnosis in the first half of the book. But of course, the the answer is you are not your own, but belong to Christ. This is the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And, and you're not offering us a technique. And I really appreciated, you know, that, that acknowledgement uh, in that last, I think it's the, the last chapter, the penultimate chapter, uh, what can we do? So what, yeah, what can we do? Where Where did you come out? And, you know, you have a whole chapter that I think is kind of reflecting on the answer to the first question of the Bible Catechism. Help us think about how reframing, even as, as, as Christians who, who may sort of affirm these things intellectually, how we might better understand these things with our heart in a way that that makes this reality uh, more powerful for us in in counteracting these pressures and tendencies and sort of default settings of society that that are built upon the idea of self-belonging
1: yeah so boy this was um this was tough this mm. the second half you know the the diagnosis is always easy right yeah. this is true with the first book too right it's easy yeah. to be like well this is all awful um but <laughs> but but so what right that's the yeah. real question and I knew that I couldn't offer a technique, and uh, I, but I needed to offer something meaningful because I think that's actually the space where uh, where Christians, um, where the gospel, where Christianity, the tr- Christian tradition, however you'd like to frame it, leaves us, mm-hmm. is that on the one hand we don't have, uh, we're not permitted the arrogant uh, utopian confidence of progress. Where we imagine that we can break all of these problems down to their component parts, determine all their causes, and then address all of them in a systematic way that so that you know justice and righteousness and peace come to earth through our personal uh, means. Um, not that we are, um, but at the same time, we also don't have the right to accept injustice. We don't have the right to accept a world with human living conditions. And so I went to two places. I went to um, T.S. Eliot, um, my favorite poet, and especially his uh, the choruses from um, the, the play The Rock. Um, and these poems, um, these choruses uh, t- tend to do with the theme of the contemporary city, of the modern city. And Eliot, of course, was very concerned about Really all of these issues, because as we know, none of these issues are, are new they 've been sped up they 've accelerated um, in the contemporary world, but you know Lewis and elul and many others were dealing with these questions right after the Second World War, as Elliot was um, and during the second world war um, and so courses from the rock uh, you know is about what do we do with the problem of the city uh, where the, the the church is in decay and um, There's little regard for it. And, you know, individualism is is rampant. And at one point, he says, uh, what have we to do but stand with empty hands and palm turned palms turned upward in an age which uh, moves, I think he says, progressively backwards. Um, and when I read that, I, I, that it just struck me as the, uh, a, a perfect encapsulation of, of, of our society. Uh, we are a society that moves progressively, um, but also the progression is, is is backwards. It's less human, less towards the idea the ideal that we were created for. Um, and his part of his response is that, that, that this is the fundamental way that the posture that we have is this posture of, receiving grace now in it i uh in that section i argue that that um this isn't a a passivity uh elliot would definitely did not argue that we just sit around and, and and not wrestle with these things and just pray about it um but that the difference is that uh when we think about the agency when we think about the action when we think about the the plan the strategy the movement um and its source—it's not coming from ourselves. Um, it's not about us finding the right technique to f- to fix everything. It's about us being faithful where God has put us. Um, so I I I worked with that, and then I also worked with uh, Elul's uh, the meaning of the city, which I found to be very enlightening and helpful in, in interpreting, um, the technological society as well. And he argues something, I think fairly similar when he's talking about, you know, living in, in exile and for Elul, the city is, um, essentially a demonic place, right? Uh, he traces it back to Cain and this effort to stand opposed and autonomous from God to live without the hand of God protecting you and providing for you that's sort of Cain's mission in the Old Testament and he argues that really the rest of human civilization the rest of the human cities have been in some way a manifestation of that we try to be self-sufficient and um, yet Elul concludes that we are like the exiled uh, Israelites not Permitted to flee the city, um, uh, and and give up, but we must, um, uh, you know, testify to God's goodness in the midst of the city that that we are. Without imagining that we're going to save the city. That's the thing that I loved about it is Elul's not saying you're going to save the city. But then he goes on to talk about Nineveh and he says, oh, by the way, God can save an entire city. And and, and people would not expect it to happen, but he's able to do that. He's done that in the past. So here are the things that you keep in tension. On the one hand, you're not imagining yourself working through technique to fix everything. On the other hand, you're not allowing yourself to become quietist or something like this. Uh, You have to act. But your hope is in God's redemptive work, not in your ability to, to manage everything and fix everything, and even evaluate and diagnose everything.
0: Yeah, that's really well put. Um, I I, um, I find something similar, um, you know, in the work of Ivan Illich as well, right? Where there's this, um, on the one hand, this desire to avoid the spirit that wants to control and manage. To predict, um, you know, and, and I would say, you know, Illich would say through technique, uh, you know, Illich is, is is you know makes clear his debt to Elul. Um, and 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 the 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 thing that he opposes to that is this willingness to accept the giftedness of life, right? That you you can't mm. you can't manage it, mm-hmm. um, you know, some degree you receive it, but but that doesn't mean you're inactive in it. Um, And it's almost as if we've forgotten what that way of being looks like. I mean, it almost comes back to that idea that we can't even imagine not solving the problems of technique without technique Um, that, that what it means to be in the world in an, in an active way, but in a way that doesn't seek to control and to manage and is receptive to, to grace, to the gift. Um, You know, there's a Illich talks about being living in X, you know, in expectation, of, of surprise, being willing to hmm. surprise is kind of his term for for grace when he's speaking in, in less overtly theological contexts, um, and that this is hard to do uh, because so much of the way that we have been formed and shaped is at odds with this way of being in the world, and so it's like you're trying to claw back a, a mode of life that has almost you know been eclipsed that we just have these little tastes of here and there now i think this is this
1: is such a what you just described is such a a difficult thing to accept personally and communally and societally um in the book i talk about um uh action and stillness or something like this mm-hmm. I'm, so i'm kind of a paradox that i'm trying to really trying to pull from yeah. um, f- four quartets from from eliot again uh where he deals with these fundamental paradoxes in the christian faith that on the one hand uh, we are called to act in faithfulness, but on the other hand, God is providing everything, and so our action is always a kind of stillness in the sense that it's not—we're not imagining that we are accomplishing good things, that we are the ones who are going to fix things. Um, so this—the this sense that. Um, We can rest, and and I do spend. I try to spend a lot of time talking about rest because I think this is one way we Mm -hmm. can sort of form these habits that maybe push back against this. Because when we're resting, we're saying, um, "I don't have to hold up my existence." Mm -hmm. Like, I I mean, that ontologically and economically and Mm -hmm. sociologically, all these. I don't Mm -hmm. have to hold up my existence. Like, I could take a nap. Not so I can be more productive, but just because I can rest and God will take care of my family and the world and my house and all these things. Um, And uh, that's profound. But I just, you know, it seems as you were describing this, I was just thinking in my own life and my own heart, like I don't want to rest. I want I'm it's scary. Like it's it's frightening to me. Like I I think on just a, a, a human level, even if you were to take me out of the contemporary world, I I want mastery. Mm-hmm. Like I want to know that I'm okay because I've hustled and I've worked hard enough and I've protected myself and um, provided for my family and all these sorts of things. I don't I I, I it, so if you take that and I and I suspect you know many people feel that to one way or to one extent or another and then you imagine a society that has totally bought into that right so that yeah. our structures and our technologies have all said yeah you're right you do need to self optimize you do need to be self mastered and And then you grow up in that. It's, it's like with those forces combined, it's just so hard to imagine doing the
0: work of being still and knowing that he is God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. And I, and I think that, you know, the idea of, of rest, um, as a, as another counterpoint, um, you know, is right on. And I, I, Feel like I want to push in a lot of other directions, but also to to be mindful of all t- of our time here. Um, I do come by come back to, to the idea of Sabbath as being uh, a powerful practice, and I and I wonder if 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 we might think of I've been trying to think of, of ways of giving shape and articulating the alternative, right? Which mm-hmm. you know, as, as we've just said, so can be so challenging because it's asking us to imagine things that are not you know, readily apparent to us or evident to us or part of our lived experience, but the idea of, 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 a, of a practice as opposed to a, a technique, mm-hmm. um, you know, one where you're, you're, you're not exerting control through the practice, you're allowing the practice to shape you. And, and sometimes that practice involves things like stillness or solitude, the cessation of labor, Where they're they're almost like counter technique or anti techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the Christian tradition certainly offers us a lot of resources that we can draw on there, however hard it may be for us to to begin practicing uh, or taking these seriously or, I don't know, giving ourselves over to them in that way.
1: I think, you know, uh, Joseph Pieper is somebody else mm-hmm. I turned to, and his idea of leisure, mm-hmm. um, I think is an anti-technique, just the way mm-hmm. he described it. And for him, at least one of the marked features, I mean, he says one thing, leisure is always rightly done, it's worship. Um, mm-hmm. But another thing about it is that um, you don't think, you don't do it for, and you, he actually, he says you can't do it for some end result right. So some accomplishment, right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, I think one of the ways that we offer practices that are different than techniques. So for example, we can say to our family, we're going to practice Sabbath rest, um, not because we, we imagine it's going to make us more holy or more righteous, or it's going to remove our stress. Like it might not do all those things. Like what if that happens? What if you practice Sabbath rest and you're still anxious? Right. That's okay, right? So yeah. that's the difference between leisure and technique. Technique would say, well, scrap it. You got to yeah, do something yeah. new. Whereas leisure would say, oh, no, this is good in itself. God has called you to this. So you might not even notice or measure the good it's doing for you, but it's good. So you do yeah. it anyway.
0: And, and that that is a good place um, for us to wrap up, Alan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. And um, Thank you. I'll, I'll put links to your work in um, in our newsletter. And I hope that uh, this serves to introduce more people to your work and to your labors. Thank you. This has been wonderful.